If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello, this is Randy Andrews. Today, I'm going to be talking about the 1981 film Escape from New York. I'll talk about the background, the connections, and of course, the soundtrack. Today, on Soundtrack Alley. Getting into the information on Escape from New York, we look at it as a post-apocalyptic, domineering society that Snake Plissken, or his real name, Kurt Russell, uh, is in. Uh, Kurt Russell has even stated that in his career, this is one of his all-time favorite films, Snake Plissken being his favorite character. And his eye patch was even suggested by Kurt Russell. Honestly, uh, it's really interesting with the cityscape that it is planned with the New York City skyline. And the model of the city was to be repainted and it was reused in Blade Runner in 1982. Another interesting fact is the wireframe computer graphics on the display screens and the glider were not computer generated, as computers capable of 3D wireframe imaging were too expensive when the film was made. And so, to generate the wireframe images, special effects designers built a model of the city, painted it black, attached bright white tape to the model buildings in an orderly grid, and moved a camera through the model city. Now, there's also a shot where the helicopter flies over Central Park, and it was actually filmed in San Fernando, California. And the buildings in the background were actually matte paintings by James Cameron. Interesting fact there. Uh, The opening narration and the computer voice in the first prison scene 
were all provided by the uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis. Donald Pleasance, he had drew on his war his own wartime experiences as a prisoner of war for his performance as the imprisoned president, which is pretty unique. Uh, the night street scenes were filmed in East St. Louis, Illinois, which had entire neighborhoods burned out in 1976 during a massive urban fire. Across the Mississippi River, from the most prosperous St. Louis, Missouri, East St. Louis was filled with old buildings that looked seedy and run down. Also, when you look at different actors that may have been considered for the role of Snake Plissken, we look at Clint Eastwood. And so with Kurt Russell's performance, he based his performance upon Clint Eastwood, which is kind of cool. In an interview, John Carpenter said that the story was inspired by the science fiction novel Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison, which was about a man with no choice but to do a job for the government. And he was doing it uh, to go to a certain planet to take care of the government's business. Ox Baker, he struck Kurt Russell very heavily with some of his blows during the boxing ring fight scene. And Kurt Russell had finally had enough and asked Baker to take it easy, tapping him in the groin to let him know he was serious. Baker then calmed down. Um, the line, I thought you were dead, was probably borrowed from the movie Big Jake back in 1971. Every time John Wayne tells someone his name, the standard response was, I thought you were dead, which would mean that parts of this film were inspired by two legendary Western stars, or even their films, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, the latter on whom Kurt Russell based his performance. John Carpenter and his crew uh, were convinced, or they convinced St. Louis authorities to shut off the electricity for 10 blocks at night. Uh, John Carpenter originally wrote the film in the mid-70s as a reaction to the Watergate scandal, but no studio wanted to make it uh, because it was deemed to be too dark and too violent. That all changed after the success of the movie Halloween. The manhole covers in the film were all made out of wood. Real ones would have to be, have been far too heavy to be used for the actors. The original negative was considered lost, but later found by the current owner of the film, MGM. It was subsequently used to create new elements for the special edition DVD. The film's budget of $7 million was the largest that John Carpenter had ever worked with up to that point. Another point is the president's down plane was an old Convair 580 bought from an airplane graveyard in Tucson, Arizona. The plane was carved up into three separate pieces and trucked into the film's St. Louis locations in the dead of night, as they didn't have the requisite paperwork. Uh, the songs, certain songs that are used in the film, Everyone's Coming to New York, 
is a song being sung at the stage show where Snake first meets the cabbie. The lyrics are as follows. Shoot a cop with a gun. The Big Apple is plenty of fun. Stab a priest with a fork, and you'll spend your vacation in New York. Rob a bank, take a truck, you can get in here by stealing a buck. This is bliss, it's a coming to New York. No more Yankees, strike the word from your ears. Play the roulette, there's no more opera at the Met. This is hell, this is fate, but now this is your home and it's great. So rejoice, pop a cork, honey everyone's coming to New York. Yes, so even interesting songs that are sung in the film really show the dystopian feel that the film gave you. Cyberpunk pioneer William Gibson credits the film as an influence for his novel, Neuromancer. He said in an interview, I was intrigued by the exchange in one of the opening scenes where the warden says to Snake, you flew the goal fire over Leningrad, didn't you? It turns out to be just a throwaway line, but for a moment it worked like the best science fiction, where a casual reference can imply a lot. This was the first film to be shot on Liberty Island beneath the Statue of Liberty. The Liberty Island scene, along with the morning shot of Manhattan where the helicopter is seen, were the only scenes in the film shot in New York City. In 1981, the Bantam Books published a movie tie-in novelization written by Mike McQuay that adopts a lean, humorous style reminiscent of the film. The novel is significant because it includes scenes that were cut out of the film, such as the Federal Reserve depository robbery that results in Snake's incarceration. The novel provides motivation and backstory to Snake and Hawk, both disillusioned war veterans deepening their relationship that was only hinted at in the film. The novel explains how Snake lost his eye during the Battle of Leningrad in World War III and how Hawk became warden of New York and Hawk's quest to find his crazy son who lives somewhere in the prison. The novel fleshes out the world that these characters exist in, at times presenting a future even bleaker than the one depicted in the film. The book explains that the West Coast is a no-man's land, and the country's population is gradually being driven crazy by nerve gas as a result of World War III. The film was shot from August to November of 1980. It was a tough and demanding shoot for John Carpenter, and he had recalled in an interview, we'd finish shooting at about 6 a.m., and I'd be just going to sleep at 7, when the sun would be coming up. I'd wake up around 5 or 6 p.m., depending on whether or not we had dailies, and by the time I got going, the sun would be setting. So for about two and a half months, I never saw daylight, which was really strange. Another of the couple scenes that were actually really interesting was one of them where Snake and an accomplice robbed the high-security bank, leading to his arrest and sentence in New York. And it was originally supposed to air in the film, but it was cut before the release. Uh, Another scene where 
there is the fight scene in the boxing ring. It was filmed in an abandoned Grand Hall of St. Louis Union Station several years before the building's renovation. While the hall was extremely dilapidated, viewers can make out the stained glass window representing New York City, St. Louis, and San Francisco in the background. This window is still above the front entry into the Grand Hall from the Market Street. The popular video game director, Hideo Kojima, has referred to this movie frequently as an influence to his work, particularly with the Metal Gear Solid series. Solid Snake is partially influenced by Snake Plissken. In Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, Snake actually uses the alias Plissken to hide his real identity during most of the game. I thought that was a unique piece of information. Back in June 2003, production IG started pre-production on an 80 to 90 minute anime feature film based off this movie. Uh, Mitsuro Hongo was attached as director and the script was written by Corey Mitchell and William Wilson under the supervision of John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and Kurt Russell. Carpenter was also going to score the music and Russell would have provided the voice of Snake Plissken. The film was meant to be released back in 2005. However, the project ended up being shelved, and the only thing that remains is a 30-second trailer and a collection of character designs and storyboards. The idea of putting a wig on at one point in the film was even improvised by Donald Pleasance. Uh, another interesting point that helps us with Escape from New York, is Avico Embassy approached John Carpenter after the success of Halloween and The Fog to make a film based on a novel they had acquired titled The Philadelphia Experiment. When Carpenter got st stuck on, the, on that project, he proposed instead his, his idea for Escape from New York. Avco liked the idea and greenlit the project almost immediately. So there could have been something much different from Escape from New York. The film's setting proved to be a potential problem for John Carpenter, who needed to create a decaying, semi-destroyed version of New York City on only a shoestring budget. He and production de designers Joe Alves rejected uh, shooting on location in New York City because it would be too hard to make it look like a destroyed city. Carpenter suggested shooting on a movie backlot, but Alves nixed that idea because the texture of a real street is not like a backlot. They sent Barry Bernardi, their location manager and associate producer, on a sort of all-expense-paid trip across the country looking for the worst city in America. Producer Deborah Hill remembers Bernardi suggests East St. Louis, Illinois, because it was filled with old buildings that exist in New York City now and have that seedy, rundown quality that the team was looking for, which is some really interesting information. Don't go to East St. Louis. 
Kurt Russell found it necessary to remove the eye patch between takes as wearing it consistently and constantly seriously affected his depth perception. Uh, when it came to shooting in New York City, John Carpenter managed to persuade federal officers to grant access to Liberty Island. We were the first film company in history allowed to shoot on Liberty Island at the Statue of Liberty at night. They let us have the whole island to ourselves. We were lucky it wasn't easy to get that initial permission. They'd had a bombing three months ago and were worried about trouble. Co-writer Nick Castle, who also worked on The Last Starfighter, uh, came up with the idea for the cabbie character and also the film's ending. Isaac Hayes' 77 Cadillac Fleetwood sedan with the fender-mounted chandeliers had been used as an influence for the modern-day art car, a vehicle decorated or customized as works of art. Two other vehicles used in the film uh, were the ancestors of mutant vehicles such as Burning Man and it was a public art festival that took place outside of Nevada. One interesting thing with John Carpenter, he was interested in creating two distinct looks for the film. Uh, one is the police state, the high-tech, uh, lots of neon, and then a United States dominated by underground computers. That was easy to shoot compared to the Manhattan Island prison sequence, which had few lights and many torchlights like feudal England. And I found this really interesting because when you watch the film, there are several parts of the movie where you see uh, movement, but you don't necessarily see anybody there because it's so dark. Um, the lighting in this film is much to be desired. Um, I'm not sure what it's like on Blu-ray, but it seems like uh, the DVD version was much darker and it didn't uh, help the film in capturing some of the action. One of the actors, Lee Van Cleef, he had flew in from Los Angeles for a one-night shoot and flew out the next day. When John Carpenter watched the dailies, he discovered that some of Van Cleef's close-ups were out of focus. So Carpenter was forced to use some of the close-ups in the movie since they couldn't afford to get the actor back. Cleef had also suffered a knee injury prior to filming and wasn't fully recovered when it came time to film his scenes. Van Cleef's wife uh, was on set to make sure the actor could get through the scenes. So maybe they should have picked someone else. <laughs> this is kind of an interesting little tidbit. Some movie posters for the film uh, that featured a fallen Statue of Liberty uh, which was a design concept, as there's been other uh, films that have had that very thing, such as The Planet of the Apes, Escape from New York, The Jupiter Menace, and The Day After Tomorrow. So one of the unique things about some of the production, John Carpenter had talked about shooting that it had began late in summer of 1980 with a $7 million budget, and it was financed by AEPC, an international film investor. 
And so the budget was the largest either John Carpenter or Deborah Hill had ever worked with. And the shooting schedule, which lasted three months, was their longest and most logistically complex to date. The production employed 180 people, fully uh, union crew, and, and another benchmark for Carpenter and Hill, who were used to working with smaller crews. So two months following the principal photography, uh, it was reserved for editing, scoring, and mixing, and ongoing visual effects at Roger Corman's Venice, California studio. And it was concluded by April or May of 1981. In, um, in preparation for a July 1981 release, According to production notes, Corman's New World Pictures utilized several different optical effects, including matte paintings, glass paintings, 3D models, time-lapse photography, uh, model animation to create all of the film's visual effects, and among the models built was a 10-foot by 10-foot scale miniature of Manhattan, and it was surrounded by water, uh, Brooklyn, was visible in the distance, and Roy Arbogast oversaw the live effects, such as explosions and the operation of mechanical devices like the president's escape pod. Arbogast and Carpenter would work together again on different projects, such as The Thing. So we keep on hearing about the thought of people that had kept on asking Pliskin, I thought you were telling him, I thought you were dead, or I heard you were dead. But each character that says that actually dies in the film. Dean Cunley uh, reunited with John Carpenter for the first time on this film, and he had introduced a computerized light modulator, which he and Joy Brown had invented and built. Using the modulator for the first time ever, Cunley was able to mimic the light patterns of fire instead of relying on actual fire during photography. Cunley also utilized a Panaglide image stabilization rig, which he helped popularize on Carpenter's Halloween. For approximately 25% of the production, to capture the smooth, moving camera shots indicative of the technology. So I thought that was really uh, unique. Um, one of the things that's kind of a spoiler alert, uh, the additional shot of Adrian Barbeau's corpse, which was shot in John Carpenter's driveway long after principal shooting was complete, was added after a then-teenage J.J. Abrams suggested it to Carpenter. Abrams saw an early cut because his father worked for the studio that produced the film and pointed out to Carpenter that Maggie's death was never fully established. And so once that filming was completed, Carpenter had realized the shot wasn't covered. And so he went ahead and did it. So today, I've got a few cues for us. Uh, by John Carpenter, because he was the composer. Uh, the first cue I have is the main title and Snake Plissken. 
I really like how John Carpenter actually makes this movie with synthesizers as the music. The main theme shows us how devoted John Carpenter was to the film. Uh, also with Snake Plissken, we see the first visual of the character and how he portrays a character with nothing to lose. So now, let's play Main Title and Snake Plissken.
next cue I'm going to play is a couple cues from the part of the movie that gets more action. Across the Road, Descent into New York, and Back to the Pod, version 1. These cues show how Pliskin gets into New York, and he's, he's starting his search for the president. I love the subtle cues for these tracks and how John Carpenter plays upon our disbelief of the unusual scenario. So now let's play those three tracks.
Lastly, we come to another close of an episode of Soundtrack Alley. Today, we've examined much about Snake Plissken's world of Escape from New York, and so the last three cues, or the last cues that I'd like to play, are The Duke Arrives, Barricade, Over the Wall, The Name is Plissken, and The Snake Shake, which is also part of the end credits. So we see the final action with the President against the Duke, Plissken's final words, and the end. We really see the grittiness of these scenes and how it plays into the post-apocalyptic world. So I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. I'd like to thank Jillian Orwall for the intro to Soundtrack Alley. You can follow me on Facebook. Uh, follow the Podcast Arcade Network on Facebook. Look for my podcast on iTunes and Podbean. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes. So now, let's play these last cues and happy listening.
gonna kill me now, Snake? I'm too tired. Maybe later. I've got another deal for you. I want you to think it over while you're resting. I want to give you a job. We'd make one hell of a team, Snake. The name's Pliskin.
thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.